Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I had the chance to talk with Zach Klein, the innovative city attorney from Columbus, Ohio, about the work he's doing to implement common sense, yet groundbreaking reform measures to chart a new future for criminal justice. We talked about his belief that calling for police reform doesn't make you anti-police, and his nationally recognized diversion program, where he focuses on rehabilitation over incarceration for nonviolent, non-repeat offenders. We also talked about his passion for public service, his path from law school to the Obama White House to the Columbus City Council, and why being an NCAA basketball ref may have prepared him for a career in politics. Zach Klein, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a while since we've gotten to chat and you've been doing lots of fantastic stuff in Columbus. So I'm excited to share that with everyone. I thought I'd start with the fact that you are, of course, the city attorney of Columbus, Ohio. And when I was prepping for this, I thought, you know what, I don't know how many people know what a city attorney does. So let's start with the question of just what, what is the city attorney? What does that entail? That's a great question that a lot of folks probably don't know what a city attorney does. Uh, I'm sure some of our municipal colleagues uh, are familiar with it. So the city attorney is the lawyer for the city. Uh, it kind of just is as simple as that. Uh, and every city is different and, and unique depending on their jurisdiction. I can say in Columbus, I'm independently elected, uh, which I think sometimes gives the council and the, the mayor headaches. But I, I love the independence and certainly uh, promotes kind of the checks and balances of government. Uh, Columbus is the 14th largest city in the United States. And I, I think San Diego, uh, L.A. and Seattle and Columbus are probably the four largest cities that have independently elected city attorneys. Most city attorneys, most lawyers for cities are appointed by a mayor or appointed by council. So the, the jurisdiction of my office and kind of what, what, what we do, I have about 177 people that work for me, uh, and it's, it's broken up into several different areas. Uh, the largest is our um, prosecution division. So we're the prosecutors for all misdemeanor crimes that happen in the city of Columbus, everything ranging from traffic uh, all the way up to domestic violence. Uh, and we do, un unfortunately, about 120,000 cases a year because of tra traffic's a good chunk of that. But there are pretty serious crimes in there, and it runs it runs the gamut. We do. We also do all the labor and employment claims. We do um, the the tax collection for for folks that aren't that aren't paying water bills or tax bills. Where we have a claims department. Uh, we do real estate. Uh, we do uh, general litigation uh, if you're suing the city. Uh, we're also the lawyers for the various departments and elected officials, and that's the mayor, the council, the, the auditor, but also the division of police and the division of fire and recreation and parks. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, an area that I started when I became city attorney was a more proactive uh, policy, um, proactive litigation section. Uh, we call that the, the solicitor general section. And that's where we've gotten involved proactively in uh, some major lawsuits nationally, where we've led a team of cities, uh, a lot, very active during the Trump administration, frankly, where we were you know, standing up for civil rights, looking out for women's reproductive rights, immigration, uh, where we were either the lead plaintiff in the case, or we joined cases or wrote, wrote uh, friends of the court briefs, amicus briefs, uh, in support of certain policy positions that we thought were important. Uh, so we, we do a lot of different things in the city, city attorney's office. It's a very exciting place to be, and I have a great team that works for me. That's so awesome. I, I'm on the solicitor side, is that that's new to the city, something you started, as you mentioned, which is kind of a big deal, obviously. Give me an example of somewhere where you were a lead plaintiff on one of those. So in, there's a case called Columbus versus Trump that has to do with the Affordable Care Act. So we joined uh, Chicago, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, and Baltimore uh, and then brought a case uh, for the Trump administration's intentional sabotage of the Affordable Care Act, kind of doing, uh, from our view, the Trump administration and um, Health and Human Services were doing everything they can to, to uh, proactively undermine the Affordable Care Act, to, to make it tank, uh, to make it not as effective as it should be. Uh, and we thought that was in violation of their of their duties as the elected officials to faithfully enforce the law as the executive branch. Uh, and we, we brought about nine claims. We, we won uh, a good chunk of those claims on summary judgment. Uh, we decided not to appeal because Biden won in working with the new Justice Department. We're now able to, we're in process of settlement negotiations of how we can fix some of the, the, the wrongs that we thought the Trump administration did. And we have a willing partner, thankfully, uh, with uh, 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 Attorney General Garland and with President Biden to to try to fix those things to make sure there's good quality health care out there for everyone. Yeah, that's so great. I want to come back later and talk about your relationship with the president who you used to work for. So but I'll come back to that a little bit later. You were city Columbus City Council president before you ran for city attorney. Is that unusual that you came from council to to the city's attorney office or and, and does that help you in kind of your job because you're, you you really have an you know an intimate knowledge of the council and the mayor and how those those work you know i i would have to go back into this the city archives to see how unusual it is um i can say at least off the top of my head the previous four city council members or city attorneys were not council members so at least in modern time uh it may be uh, a little bit unusual uh, but I do think that the the years on council, you know, uh, four and a half uh, as a council member, and then sort of two and a half as council president, too, as council president, certainly did give me the opportunity to understand uh, the city, its players, the issues, uh, gave me the perspective from the different uh, the different and great neighborhoods that we have, and the concerns that each individual unique neighborhood has, and kind of gave me a. Um, a very, it was a very strong training ground uh, to move into, then be the chief legal officer for the city, have that experience. And I wouldn't, you know, council's a hard gig. And for all the council members that are listening to this and that are part of the new deal, uh, I understand, you know, city council is a, is a tough gig because you, you have to, you're not the executive, you're not the mayor of the city, uh, but you want to, you know, you're always doing the right thing, trying to work with the mayor. Um, sometimes you get, you get 
you take the political hits for things that are beyond your control because maybe an executive decision was made. And to, to, to most people, like you're just government, right? And if the mayor does, even if you're adverse to the mayor, whatever it may be, like if the mayor does something or the or someone else who's elected does something, they all lump us in together. And it's like government has wronged me. And so you try to differentiate yourself from the other council members, the, the mayor, whatever other elected officials you have in your jurisdiction or municipality. So I feel for you, but it is a great opportunity to serve. And it's a great opportunity to make a difference. Uh, and that's where like we tried to do what I tried to do when I was a council member and certainly as council president trying to lead our council in a direction that served the city of Columbus. Yeah, that's so fantastic. I mean, even as city attorney, obviously, as you mentioned, you are involved in so many different aspects of government, of policy. And I, you know, to your point about the role of a council uh, and you a city attorney, I mean, right now in particular, right, we're, we're dealing with so many things simultaneously, whether it's the pandemic and the economic fallout from the pandemic, the racial injustice issues that have come up. So there's just, you know, that really runs the gamut. And, and that's why I wanted to start by asking you in terms of some of the work you've done about your efforts around police reform, um, which you started, I think, after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and some and some others, maybe before, you can correct me. But in particular, you wrote an op-ed earlier this summer that was called Calling for Police Reform Doesn't Make You Anti-Police, which I thought was a really great message. And I kind of wanted to ask you both about why you thought that was an important message to, to get out there and what specifically are some of the reforms that your office has been championing um, in this area? Well, I, I think it is an important message and it, it's one where um, over the past 18 months that I feel like our politics, uh, and this includes policing, it's every, every kind of public policy issue that we've been dealing with, there are, there are elements out there, in my opinion, that are trying to push us into corners and make us choose extreme ideologies on both ends. And so in the policing world, uh, at least in my city, and I think in talking to some of my colleagues across the country, this is something that is not abnormal. Uh, in Columbus is something that's actually permeating uh, our, the national narrative on policing across the country is, is that somehow you have to choose uh, either between police reform on the one hand or uh, police uh, uh, supporting police on the other, as if you can't do both. Uh, and and I, I thought it was just a, a common sense message that needed to be said that we can walk and chew gum on this issue just like we can on others, that we can recognize that police have very difficult jobs uh, that, that we need to support them because we live, unfortunately, in a country, in my opinion, where guns are everywhere. It's a very dangerous uh, place to live in some communities, some areas of our country and some, some communities of each city. And that we need police to be able to do appropriate and legal enforcement actions because there are dangerous people out there. Uh, on the flip side, uh, police also uh, have made some uh, made some decisions or policy decisions over time in each jurisdiction that need to be changed and we need to have reform uh, and that both those can exist at the same time and that we don't have to choose one or the other. And that's why I thought it was important, given my, the unique position that I have as city attorney, because I'm the lawyer for the police. To, to say that I'm going to push for reform, but I'm also going to push for police to do their job and be supportive in doing their job. What are some of those specific areas of reform you've been working on and, and, and how, it's a great point that you're the lawyer for the police, you know, how, how have you been able to bring the police into those conversations about reform successfully? It, it, look, it's been hard. I'm going to be honest with you. One of the things that I think that is challenging about being uh, an independently elected city attorney uh, is that my boss is the voters or are the voters, but my client could be someone like the or an entity like the police department. 
So obviously, as a lawyer, I have an ethical obligation as a member of the bar, the Ohio bar, to to represent my client and do it zealously and do it correctly. But at the same time, like I also have an obligation to the people that I represent, and it's sometimes can be a very challenging balancing act. But as long as as long as you you know, always have your North Star and your moral compass and what what you want to do is right, then I think that also means that you're representing the department the right way because you're able to shift and move the department in a direction that you think is not only legally defensible, but at the same time, policies and procedures that reflect community expectations and that are the right thing to do. And so that th- those can coexist that, you know, representing my, my client zealously and, and being the best lawyer for, for the police department, for example, I think also means understanding where they, there are weaknesses, where there's where the city has exposure, perhaps liability from a legal standpoint, or where there are harms within a certain segment of the community to make to improve the, uh, the policies and pr- procedures surrounding those, to improve the division of police and policing in general. So that's how I can serve my client the best. Uh, and so, for example, you know, in the city, we just recently passed a series of charter changes and ordinances that the council president, the mayor, and myself uh, help lead that is instituting a civilian review board. Uh, we're the largest city in, in the United States, I think, without some sort of civilian review board or civilian oversight. And so that, that has just changed. And we're, uh, you know, you from a legal perspective, getting that up and running. Uh, we created a policy in, in, in conjunction with a previous chief of police that favored summons over arrests for nonviolent misdemeanors. Uh, so that we're not arresting folks for for nonviolent misdemeanor or, or for non for nonviolent misdemeanors specifically if you're not a repeat offender. I mean, obviously, if you're a repeat offender and you're always out there doing trespassing, or you're always going on someone someone's property, then then perhaps like you do need to be arrested because clearly you're not you're not respecting the law or that person's property or his or her space. Um, so we we try to Debbie try to always think about how we're going to reform the criminal justice system or reform policing uh, in a, what I think is a common sense way and really differentiating between nonviolent and violent offenders. Uh, and I think we have to be very careful when we enter this criminal justice reform policing space to always remember there are violent, dangerous people out there. Uh, we need to have accountability for them. But then there's a vast majority of the folks who are committing the crime that are nonviolent offenders that need help, they need pointed in the right direction, they need resources, and we can really make a difference in those people's lives. And that's the way that I've tried to treat the way that I approach policing reform as well as the as criminal justice reform generally. Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is this exactly implementing what you just said on a, uh, on a um, on kind of a broad scale, thinking about uh, rehabilitation over incarceration, you have gotten national attention, New York Times, for this work, uh, helping understand barriers. You call it HUB, I think, H-E-B, right? Which, again, is trying to get to this, the root causes of problems and trying to just really, you know, I think some people will, I mean, I think I love it. And I think some people will really think that that's, that's just a common sense way to, as you were talking about, to think about criminal justice. What's the goal here, right? And so tell us a little bit about that program and, and the success you've had with it. Yeah, so so the hub program. I'll start off by saying I I personally believe is the fu- future of criminal justice. It's the future of the way that we should be treating nonviolent offenders. Uh, not not necessarily someone again who's a repeat offender or a chronic offender, um, but someone who may who may have you know single digit or less offenses on their record. And what we do 
uh, is we, we take a step back. And this is where I challenged my team when I became city attorney and asked a very simple question. Why is this defendant in the courtroom? Why did he or she steal, for example? And I, I use stealing and big box shoplifting as, a, as, the, as the example, because that's where we piloted the program. We now expanded it from, those, from that crime, but we started with big box shoplifting and, and said, like, why did this person steal food? Why did this person steal a, a mattress? That very simple question can yield pretty complex answers. And so we, in, in working with a, a third-party healthcare organization, created a program where each individual defendant that's part of this program will get a 36 question uh, questionnaire, a screen to identify the root causes of crime, the root cause of why that person committed a crime. And it could range from uh, food insecurity to housing, to drug addiction, to mental health, uh, employment issues, it runs the gamut. But depending on how, that, how this individual defendant uh, answers the question, then that defendant gets a tailored plan specific to him or her to address those underlying needs. So for example, if you're stealing food uh, from your Kroger or your Publix, whatever the, the, the major food chain is in your jurisdiction, in, in food insecurity is one of the problems that, that kind of pings or, you know, on, on, the, on the questionnaire, then part of your diversion program, and when we say diversion, we mean that we take you almost like quasi out of the court system so that you don't have to plead, you don't have to get a criminal conviction on your record. And we say, you have to, you have to visit your local food pantry. Did you know there's one right around the corner from where you live right now? So it really, it's, it's this, again, common sense way of, of trying to identify the reasons why people are committing crimes and then cure them, fix them so that you don't have repeat offenders. And that's to me, the purpose of the criminal justice system is how can we improve someone's outlook on life? How can we improve the trajectory that they're on so that they're not a repeat offender that makes our community safer? Uh, it saves the big box store money. It keeps families together. So we win all across the board at a cheaper rate than incarcerating them for periods of time for, for something like that old adage of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. The way that we approach the criminal justice system for decades, I think was that way was we was, oh, you stole incarceration, you stole incarceration. Why do you keep stealing? Well, I'm hungry. Well, why don't we take a step back and address those root causes of crime in a way of making our community safer in the long run? And obviously, if you just said that you expanded beyond what you originally piloted it for, it's it, presumably it was it's been super successful. So both is that true? And then also, do you do you feel like you've got the community support for this? It seems like something that would have be hugely popular. Yes, we 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 do have community support. We even had the buy in from the big box retailers because they they saw some of the more frequent flyers stealing from their stores and knew that the way they were doing things wasn't addressing the same people showing up. Now we have a great partnership with them. They know that they can weigh in at any time if they feel like this individual is part of a of a global theft ring. And that's that's really um, specifically true at some of our hardware stores. Um, but uh, they can weigh in with us. It's ultimately our decision, you know, ultimately. Um, but they know because of the relationship we have that they can, they can they can weigh in on particular defendants, give us some insight. We can choose to accept it or not. But they really buy in on the concept because it saves them heartache along the way as a as a as a retailer with loss prevention. If we're able to help the folks who are stealing from their stores, yeah, I, I was really taken, Zach, when I was getting ready for this interview about what I read on some of the tactics that you use to train 
your staff and to think differently to your point about the criminal justice system um, more generally, uh, including things like going to visit prisons and talking to people, inmates, not just about their experience in the prison, but also how it was impacting their family and loved ones and just kind of the broader the broader system. And then in particular, this idea of that you did, as I understand it, is a, of a poverty simulation where you uh, went through and experienced what it would be like to live as a low income person and have the choices you'd have to make over the a month period or something. I, I'm super I haven't really heard of that before. I thought that was super interesting. So what was that about? And, and how did that kind of help illuminate or change minds in terms of how you wanted to approach things? So uh, as the leader of the office, I can implement whatever policies that I think are appropriate that serve the city of Columbus, but I need the buy-in and the recognition from the everyday prosecutors who are in the courtroom prosecuting those 120,000 cases a year. And if they're not bought in on the vision that I see the criminal justice system and the way it should be, then I'm going to have problems within my own office implementing my own policies. So I thought it was important to take a step back and retrain and refocus our prosecutors' attention to the other side of the criminal justice system. Uh, a lot of, you know, focusing on those who did commit crimes, its impact on their families, not to excuse criminal conduct. This isn't, this isn't a, a course on how we can get people out of jail for free or to let people slide and have no accountability for actions that hurt others, uh, but as a way to have a different perspective and a different way we measure success uh, of what it means to be a prosecutor. You know, historically, success was uh, I have ninety nine point nine percent conviction rate as a prosecutor. I you know, and convictions are important because there are dangerous people out there: domestic violence abusers, human traffickers, murderers, rapists, robbers. Uh, but again, like those the, those violent criminals are a small number of the overall. Uh, defendants in our criminal justice system. A vast majority of them are nonviolent offenders or are facing some sort of addiction or uh, some mental health issue or come from a disadvantaged uh, opportunity where they maybe turn to crime because they they were they didn't have those opportunities growing up that maybe we we had. And so how can we change our prosecutorial mindset to help those individuals using community resources to give them a second chance? And it was through this training uh, that we did do that. Um, and and we, we continue to, to train. And, and as we onboard new prosecutors, we, we always try to focus and emphasize the community resources that are available. And we actually now have a, a system in place where if, uh, a def if a prosecutor in a courtroom sees a situation that would be eligible, a defendant who would be eligible for this type of kind of intensive care and treatment, then we were able to put kind of electronic you know, flag on the file. And we have a, we kind of have a roaming prosecutor that deals with these cases. Hmm. I just, I think it's just so smart, frankly. And I mean, at the end of the day, right, we're looking to, you know, get people out of the criminal justice system that we can, right? And, and to rehabilitate people and to, and to also, you know, and I think another theme that kind of runs through a lot of the work you've done is, is, is equity, right? So to, to recognize that, you know, there have been some really long standing inequities in the system where people are um, just proportionately impacted by choices they make or whatever it is. And, and I think that you've done a, a number of things to address some of those, those issues, including thinking about cash bail as one of them, just, uh, right. You know. I was going to say that that's exactly why we eliminated cash bail for again, nonviolent misdemeanors. Uh, there are exceptions. Like again, if you're a, a chronic offender, if you're a repeated, uh, repetitive offender, offender, then we 
we will ask for cash bail for that. But for, for the typical defendant who has little to no arrest history or arrest history where they have shown up to court every single time that they have been asked to, like what, why, what's the purpose of cash bail in a situation like that? The purpose of cash bail is, you know, it's a combination of community safety and making sure that you show up to court. And if you've demonstrated that you've always shown up to court, then maybe that's a situation where we don't need to ask for cash bail. So we have eliminated requesting cash bail for nonviolent misdemeanors. We ended the prosecution of misdemeanor marijuana possession in the city of Columbus. It's still a, a violation of Ohio Revised Code. Ohio is still a state where it's only medical marijuana. But we don't. We told police, don't bring us any more misdemeanor marijuana cases because of uh, several reasons, one of which was equity in the system, particularly as it relates to Black men and prosecutions. Yeah, yeah. What, another one, and I don't know if you would put this in the equity bucket, but it seems like I suspect it is disproportionately imp- impacting low-income folks, is the Project Taillight uh, project, which is one of something you've reached uh, recently uh, introduced last spring, where you're connecting low-income residents with vehicle repair needs with the Columbus State College students who are doing those repairs. So I, I think this is fascinating. Tell, tell me about that. So it, this is probably something I should have brought up negligent on me as it relates to policing reform. But we, when, when we had um, the, the protests in the city of Columbus um, in reaction to the death and murder of George Floyd, uh, I had my own announcement of initiatives that I thought were important for the city attorney's office to lead and do based on the expertise of my prosecutors and litigators. And one of them was this notion that in hearing from a lot of folks in the African-American community in particular, and primarily African-American men, of just what they thought were unnecessary interactions with police officers. And so, again, taking a step back and looking at, and by the way, traffic interactions, to be clear, traffic interactions. So taking a step back, uh, you know, we designed this program that in conjunction with Columbus State Community College that actually has a uh, a career track that partners with dealerships where folks can come in and be trained technicians. We said, well, what if we were able to look at unnecessary traffic stops? And what I mean by unnecessary are, are like, you know, broken taillights. So they aren't safety violations per se, as when people are speeding or running red lights or drinking and driving. Like these are, these are violations where folks who are middle class and are, are not living paycheck to paycheck would immediately go down to their auto zone and get their taillight fixed. But maybe there's a reason why, because of poverty or lack of economics, opportunity or money, that they can't get it fixed. And to me, like, if, if money is a reason you can't get a taillight fixed, then that is an unnecessary police stop. So that's, that's where we were able to step in uh, in conjunction with Columbus State and uh, have a, a, a program that's funded by the city, it's funded by the county, where um, and we have these, these days where folks can sign up, make an appointment, and they can come into the shop and get a repair for free. They can have their ta- taillight fixed, their, their headlight, their brake light, uh, the light that goes over your license plate. Um, like all, all of that um, can, be, can be repaired to avoid unnecessary police interactions or at least, police, at least a police interaction that's determinative on poverty. Uh, and so like the next, I think growing this in the next iteration, knowing that there are, you're not going to be able to, to, to fix every single person it's taillight before they may get pulled over by police is partnering with police so that, if the, that we still want to run these clinics. We still want to be able to have people come get them in to be more proactive to prevent that unnecessary police stop to begin with. But at the same time, knowing that some stops are going to happen, you know, the division of police has expressed interest uh, in, in doing something that I think the city of St. Paul and or Minneapolis does. And that is 
is instead of writing a citation on site is giving a coupon or giving a, a voucher for someone to then go take their car to go get it fixed. So I think having both at the same time, again, could hopefully not escalate a police stop that does happen into a further situation that's dangerous for the officer and for the citizen, but then still be able to, to correct a, an equipment violation. Yeah, I love that. I so love that. And one of the things I love about it is, and it kind of goes back to what you're talking about with the big box thefts too, it feels like you have really been successful at engaging a lot of community partners. So, right, this is not just a something you're running out of your office. You're pulling together the community college, the police, the you know, and 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 same with your you know your comment earlier about you know engaging big box stores on an ongoing basis in these conversations. So, how do you think about pulling different community stakeholders together as you're thinking about this reform? And and where what's what's the recipe for success there? I'm a big believer in, in teamwork. I'm a big believer in collaboration. I, I have an open door policy in my office, both for folks that work for me and for the citizens that I represent, my constituents. And I, and that's no different than you know living in a community that has so many wonderful resources and willing partners that want to be part of the change. And so I, some of it, I think, is honestly rooted in my time on council and just developing those relationships and understanding the the, the resources we do have and then able to translate that and bring it over to the city attorney's office. But I think that that across the country, there are so many willing not-for-profits, private businesses, both public, you know, or family-owned small businesses that want to be part of a solution. I would not hesitate to reach out and ask. All they can do is say no, or maybe they, maybe they want to point you in a different direction or give you a, a spin that maybe you never thought of based on their expertise. So formulating those those relationships and getting that input can make you a really great and successful, I think, elected official and bringing about true policy change and getting buy-in from the community you serve. Yeah, absolutely. One other question I wanted to ask you about kind of the time in which you find yourself governing in this role is obviously we're still dealing with COVID. And I have to believe that that has uh, impacted your job and, and the priorities of the city in different ways. You, I, you know, I know that this has personally affected you as well. And I'm so sorry about that, um, COVID. But in terms of thinking about kind of the needs of the city, you and I talked early on in the pandemic about the, for example, the really the heartbreaking rise in domestic violence, violence cases that was happening when everybody was kind of shut up at, you know, shut in at home. What are you seeing and kind of, and how are you thinking about, you know, addressing some of those challenges and, and what are you seeing as kind of the big ones that are still on the horizon as we continue through this pandemic? And even if, when we start to come out of it, are there new issues that kind of are, are taking on a different type of importance? Well, from, from a labor HR perspective, vaccinations and requiring, requiring vaccines are, are immediately what comes to mind. Like we are in the middle end stages just for my office, my 177 people of what we're going to do and announce to our team as it relates to vaccines you know, the public sector and the private sector, several areas of the public sector and private sector have already been requiring vaccines. And um, the Justice Department has given employers the green light to require vaccines. So I think that that is going to be the next sort of wedge issue that, that folks are going to have to deal with at the workplace. Our domestic violence numbers um, are still very high, but unfortunately, they're, they're always very high. Uh, we do... Um, way too many domestic violence cases in the city of Columbus. It was a, a very serious, dire concern during the pandemic, as you mentioned, when people were locked with their abuser at home and couldn't go outside because there was nowhere to go to, and people were, were you know, just working from home. So we're, we, we will always keep an eye on that. And then depending on 
the type of jurisdiction you live in as it relates to taxation. Uh, and, you know, do you, ta- like in the city of Columbus, for example, we, we get two and a half percent that folks pay um, on if they, if they work in the city of Columbus, it's not dependent on where they live, but if they work in the city of Columbus, they have to pay two and a half percent to the city. Well, if you're working remotely, like how does that, you know, how does that work? What does that look like? If you only go in the office two days a week versus three, like what percentage of that two and a half percent should the city get under, under Ohio law and under the city of Columbus law? So these are very complex and challenging issues that made us rethink the way that that the city of Columbus does business because we are so heavily income tax dependent. Now, not every city is like that, but the city of Columbus and all the cities in Ohio are. Hmm. hmm. I'd love to turn Zach a little bit to um, your path into public service. Of course, this is an honorable profession in which we, you know, one of the big points of it is just to talk about how people got into this, you know, into this realm of, uh, of this kind of career. So you, after college, went straight into law school. And so I guess just off the bat, like what, what was it that drew you to want to pursue a, a career in, in the law? I wasn't, didn't think that I was smart enough to be a surgeon. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I don't think that's I, I, true. I went, I, no, I'm, I, this is an honestly good, like I, I went to college to be a doctor. Um, I, I wanted to be a surgeon. Uh, I took a series of, I was a biochem major. I took a series of classes, one of which was analytical chemistry and analytical chemistry had like a what seemed to be a six to eight hour a week lab requirement where you had to measure water to calibrate your instruments to like the millionth decibel point. And it was one of the most miserable experiences I ever had. And I took a step back and you know, looked at myself in the mirror and said, this is miserable self. What are we going <laughs> to do? Um, and so I, I just, I abandoned that thought and I went to the Barnes and Noble and grabbed an LSAT book until they took the LSAT three weeks later and went to law school. I had no family or friends that were lawyers and no one to kind of bounce ideas off with. I now tell people that are similarly situated to the extent that they're thinking about going to law school, not so much abandoning their dreams of being a doctor. But I always say like that LSAT's pretty important. Maybe take a little bit more than three weeks yeah. in a Barnes and Noble, <laughs> you know, LSAT for dummies books. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I'm very blessed and fortunate. Honestly, I've done some really awesome things in my life and have been given so many wonderful opportunities. Even when I wanted to be a doctor, um, I, I always thought that I would find myself in public service. Like I wanted to serve. I wanted to be an elected official. Because, and not that you have to be a lawyer or to serve your community as an elected official. People can serve in various, many different ways. But I, I wanted to, to make a difference in people's lives and help people. And I, I thought that by being an elected official, I would be able to do that. And I've been very fortunate to get elected um, to these positions and I, you know, just try to do the right thing in a very challenging time that I know my colleagues across the United States have recognized too, that it's, it's hard to be an elected official right now because people distrust government at all levels, uh, city, county, state, uh, and, and federal. Um, but it's not, it's not meant to be easy, but we're given so many wonderful opportunities to touch people's lives and to make a difference and improve to improve outcomes for children and, and, and families across the country. And, and we always need to keep that perspective, even when, you know, the crap's hitting the fan and it feels like the walls are coming in around us, which I know many on, you know, within the new deal have felt that way at least once in the past 18 months. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, it's natural. Uh, but 
always keep the North Star and the moral compass pointed into what's the right thing to do. The politics will figure itself out. And I'm not naive. Like I said, I'm independently elected. I represent 900,000 people in the 14th largest city. There's politics everywhere. And that's fine, too. But the politics will ultimately figure itself out. And it's always better to ask what's the right policy outcome and then have then figure out the politics to fit the right policy outcome. Yeah, I love that. And you know that I believe that too. I think that best ideas are the best politics. I've always believed that myself. I do want to ask you about one of those opportunities because it's, you know, as you think about your journey, you went from after law school to being a law clerk to an opportunity to work for then Vice President Biden. Tell us how did that come about? And, uh, and, and tell us a little bit about what you did in the White House. So the one piece of advice that I always give to folks is the power of networking. And that's how this all came about for me. So when I was at Ohio State, or the Ohio State University, uh, when, I, when I was at uh, Ohio State, uh, after I switched from biochem to political science my senior year, I uh, went and spent time in D.C. on a John Glenn Fellowship. And the, the, the semester or the quarter, it was a quarter at the time, the quarter was set up as... Uh, you basically work like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday in some sort of policy role, like, like think tank, wherever you're placed, right? And then Wednesday was a classroom day uh, where it was lecture, it was a uh, field trip, whether it's Smithsonian or Arlington Cemetery, um, all the great sites, behind the scenes sort of stuff. But there was inevitably a, a speaker that would come from various walks of life in Washington, D.C. And... Uh, one of the speakers that came one random Wednesday uh, was a guy by the name of Mo Vela, M-O-E-V-E-L-A. Uh, and this was in the spring of 2001. Uh, so this is after Bush v. Gore. George W. Bush was just inaugurated January 20th, 2001 to kind of give perspective. Well, Mo just finished working for Al Gore. Uh, and he was, you know, on his way out of the White House uh, and, you know, doing his own soul searching. But he told me the story, he told us the story of how he got to work for Al Gore. He worked for Ann Richards in Texas. He's a Texan, worked his way up the ranks, worked in the, the ag department, uh, and then kind of got connected with a guy named Ron Klain, who's the chief of staff to now President Biden, but was the chief of staff to Al Gore at the time. And so I was just really impressed with this story. I mean, I'm a kid from Southeastern Ohio. You know, I graduated the class of 110 people on the river across from Parkersburg, West Virginia, where when they got an outback, we got super excited because we thought we were a metropolis. And so the, here's a guy that's saying, like, I'm from a small town in Texas and I worked at the White House. And I was like, man, that's, that's a hell of a career. Like, that's pretty amazing. So I asked Mo uh, if I could buy him a cup of coffee while I was still in D.C. And he said yes. And, you know, fast forward you know, eight years after that, we stayed in touch. Uh, I always would kind of ping him and ask him, like, what do you think about this law school class or this clerkship or this opportunity? And he just became a friend, uh, a mentor and friend. And he called me up uh, in November of 2008 uh, and said, Ron Klain called me uh, to come back and work for Pre Vice President Biden. I get to hire one person. Do you want to be that person? You stuck with me all those years. And so I I immediately jumped at the opportunity and went to go work at the White House. And I was the deputy director of management administration, which is like a, it's equivalent to a COO title for the office of the vice president. Uh, and it was a tremendous opportunity. And it's, it's, it's even cooler now because all the folks that surround president Biden are the folks that I worked with intimately 
when I was in the executive office building right next to the West Wing. And now they're advising the president of the United States. And it's, it's very, it's amazing to text back and forth with them and just keep encouraging them to do the, to continue the great work that they're doing. Yeah. And now to be in a position where you can partner with them, as you were talking about earlier on so many important issues is I love that story though. And I, and I, and a great advice too, for our listeners in terms of, you know, thinking about how you further your career, just, you know, just engage in, you know, in opportunities. It's, it is to kind of, you know, develop those relationships and, you know, know where something might lead. So what then you said from the very early that you thought elected officialdom might be in your future. So what was the opportunity like that presented itself in Columbus that you just decided this is the one? There was a vacancy on city council. So the city council appoints a vacancy to, from its own body. Uh, and so there was a vacancy on city council and I applied uh, and I got selected and I had to subsequently run. So I served for a year, Was on the, this was in um, in January of 2011. Uh, so I was selected in January of 2011. I ran in 2011. I ran in 2015. And I ran for city attorney in 2017. And I'm on the ballot this November, uh, unopposed uh, in uh, November 21. I like to think it's because I'm a kick-ass city attorney, but I think it was because the pandemic had a you know something to do with it too, but I'll take it. I'm unopposed. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to the next four years and, and, and seeing the work that we've started through completion and, you know, what's on the horizon and the new work that can be done. Yeah, I love that. So I want to end with this question. It's, um, and I'm, I'm going to say, I was going to ask it in kind of a flippant way, which I thought would be funny. So I'm going to do that. But I, I do want to just acknowledge the kind of the the part you just said about the elected officials and what you guys are dealing with this right now. And, you know, the men and women who are serving right now, it is a, it, you know, I work with them all over the country, as you know, it is a tough time to be elected official. And I have so much respect and admiration for the people who put themselves out there, you know, in the middle of this really vitri vitriolic and uncivil dialogue that we're having as a country where, you know, if you don't agree with someone, they must be an evil person, you know? So I really just want to acknowledge that. I do want to say though, that you um, have ha had one job, which I know about, which um, may have prepared you for this, which is you were a <laughs> a referee for basketball in, in, in the NCAA. And, you know, it was, you know, I'm making a little analogy because that is one of those positions that, you know, probably got a lot of flack uh, along the way. So uh, did that help you um, kind of, you know, again, a much more serious conversation about the state of our country and our and our civic dialogue that needs to be addressed. But did that help prepare you for some of this? So I still do referee. Uh, I don't, oh, you know I don't, doing. I don't okay. referee as much. Yeah. I, I, I have refereed in the ACC and the big East and the American, uh, the Atlantic 10 conference USA. Now I don't do those conferences anymore, but I, I still do the mid American and the horizon league, um, division one women's college basketball. Uh, and it's been great to me. It was kind of what I did when I was in college to make some extra bucks. And then one thing led to another and, uh, got selected to referee in the NBA training program and spent many summers out refereeing summer league, uh, refereeing the NBA minor league and then the conferences I just mentioned. And like, it can be tough. Like, I mean, obviously it's just a game. Uh, it's very serious to the people playing for obvious reasons. Cause it, it, whether it's the NBA, it's their career, it's the, how they make their money. Or if they're student athletes, they want to win. The coaches want to win. So it, you definitely have to be uh, not for the faint of heart when it comes to criticism and people yelling at you. Uh, and maybe in some ways it, it has prepared me to let people vent to the way they need to vent, but know when you have to stop, you have, you know, 
tell people to stop. In particular, when you're council president in an unruly council meeting of like knowing when you when you're going to draw the line to let people who are upset and, and for could be for very good reasons with government or with the city to give them that opportunity to be heard. But no, at some point, you've got to be able to draw the line and know how to enforce the line. I don't know. I'm sure there's some parallels, but it is uh, it has been very good to meet a referee. And I hope I can continue to do it, um, even if it's in a very kind of scaled back way. Yeah, that is it's, it's such a cool thing that you've done. I, I didn't know you were still doing it. I think that's such a wonderful experience. And is there anything just on the point about the, you know, the culture and the dialogue? You, you, you know, you're somebody who talks a lot about common sense solutions, about bringing people together. You know, any advice for people who are trying to cut through the, the divisive rhetoric and, 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 you know, bring people together around a table to solve problems? Yeah. I mean, surround yourself with the people that you think can offer solutions, even if they're antithetical to yours, to your ideas. It's okay to bring someone to the table that disagrees with you. There's a difference between disagreement and disagreeable, right? Uh, and if you, if you have to have divergent ideas, and as a leader, I think we have to have all these, a buffet of ideas that we can pick what we think is the best one that's going to serve our constituency. But we should never go in thinking that we're always right and we have all the ideas. Um, and I, I do believe that people are thirsting for um, that common sense, middle of the road solutions to really significant problems our country are facing at all levels of government. I, I think that is reflective overall in some more recent election wins, both in special elections um, and in general elections of who's really winning these races. Not everyone, not everyone, but I think when you look at some of the more competitive, more competitive seats, the folks who are in the, in the, the middle and that doesn't mean that your politics necessarily has to be in the middle. It's okay to be progressive. It's okay, you know, it's okay to to have really big, bold ideas. I think those are important. I certainly have them, at least I like to think so, um, as we change the landscape in Columbus. But but differentiating yourself from the fringes and knowing that when you turn on Twitter, that is not exactly who may be voting in the next election. Otherwise, we may have a different president. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Well, Zach, thanks so much for coming on the show today. And it's so great to see you and to talk to you. And I just want to say thank you. I mean, you are doing really, really, really cutting edge and smart stuff in Columbus. I hope that people will steal your ideas across the country. And, um, and just uh, thanks for all you're doing. Well, I appreciate it. And if someone's listening to this and has an idea, I'm not afraid to take a great idea, too. Because I don't, <laughs> again, I don't know at all. And if you have a great idea that I should be doing, hit me up and let me know. Fair enough. I love it. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.